our story is about a library. Although this library is a new one, it is not much different from most, and the people you will see might be your own neighbors. You guys, we did it. <laughs> yes! <laughs> guys, I was in the car going to my in-laws, or like what my mom calls my in-laws, because I don't know what to do. Like, what do you call your boyfriend's parents that you live with? Your boyfriend's parents? Hey, Riddle Riddle has a word for this. Sopas. Significant oh, other's yeah! parents. Yeah, I, that's good. Like, You're so pots. Not like married, but then I don't know. Like I feel like saying, "Oh, my boyfriend's parents," and we heard it like on the radio, and all the tweets just came rushing in, and we were um, getting gas, and I did like a little dance in the car. Aww. And when we were driving up, I kept clapping and saying thank you out the window to all the Biden Harris signs and then hissing at all the Trump Pence and I think a guy heard me but like come on because I was we walking on the beach and people were driving by with American flags honking and when everyone every time someone honked everyone would cheer and then this guy came by in a Biden Harris tee that he had cut the sleeves off of off of so it was very like 1980s muscle tank and he had a little horn on his bike and he was honking and he was going whoa whoa and everyone was like that's so Biden and then there was one guy who gave him the middle finger and everyone who was like around the area of the beach like it's COVID so people like weren't like close together but people were like around each other and everyone just looked at that guy like you're the asshole. <laughs> there was like just tons of honking and it was a lot of fun. And then I was trying to take my Shabbat nap and there was still honking. What I want to know like immediately, and I say that sarcastically because we have a lot of other fish to fry, is where his like presidential library is going to be because that's like law in, in the 50s. Congress passed a law that every U.S. president has to have their library. My guess is that Trump's is going to be in, like, Florida, like, right next to a golf. You don't think New York City? No. I'm being fully serious when I say it's Florida because I don't think New York. The Mar-a-Lago Presidential <laughs> Library? Yeah, probably. <laughs> this modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. Today, I'm joined in the Lady History Library by Lexi. Lexi, what's the best grade you've gotten on a paper about a book you didn't read? Well, I have to tell you something, Alana. I've never not read a book for school. I am a kiss-ass. I'm a loser. I never had friends Haley, in high Haley's school. Haley's doing the big... L the big L forehead. on her forehead. I know. Um, I was called all sorts of names. Brown noser, ass kisser. Um, my number one teacher relationship was with the AP literature teacher. <laughs> um, I read every word of Light in August. I read every word of 100 Years of Solitude. So sorry to disappoint you, but... You're blowing my mind right I now. read all of Crime and Punishment, word for word. <laughs> Our other librarian is Haley. Haley, what do you think is the most overrated book in the straight white male literary canon? Anything from Shakespeare. I love you so much, Haley. I also don't like Shakespeare. There's a theory that he might be three women pretending to be a man. And I'm Milana, and I believe everyone has two favorite books, their intellectual favorite and their actual favorite. 
100% true. So this is my post-intro banter. What is your intellectual favorite and what is your actual favorite? Intellectual favorite is like your favorite that you had to read for school and then like your real favorite. That's assuming I like read books in high school. (laughs) Okay, let me, like, let me, okay, I'm like on the spectrum of dyslexia. My mom may come after me. She doesn't listen to the podcast, so it's fine. She's in denial about it. But I have a really hard time doing pronunciation in my head and pronouncing words. It just, it happened. I didn't really start reading until the second grade. So going into high school, we had to do the standardized testing. I got a one on the English and then like a four on the science because those were like the two that were. And they thought I was like the stupidest person in the world. Like you couldn't like brain fathom that I didn't think the same way for reading grammar and like reading books because they're like, did you, what happened? You got a four on science. And I just like did not read. Like it was never... And I read books on the side. My mom would like see me reading like Harry Potter, Hunger Games, all the YA books of the time and not reading school books. And it was just like out of disdain. But I think if I had to pick out of like the five I actually read was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because I knew I would watch the movie with Jack Nicholson. And I actually liked the book. And then fun book. I don't have a favorite fun book. I just have a genre, like the cheesy um, romance novels, not about sex, but just like the girl finding the guy, the single mom, like figuring life out. Anything from like Jennifer High, Jasmine Guillory, those books are my jam because I know that like I'm so distant from them just like in retrospect, and I don't have those type of human emotions. I'm like, oh, that's, that is a fantasy. That's like my fantasy type thing. Like, I think I can like, see a pig fly or just like Harry Potter's wand come shooting at my brain cells. But like girl falling in love because she met a guy at the bookstore. Mm -mm, That sounds fake. I want to point out Haley is the only one of us who's in a romantic relationship right now. I think that says something about if you have too high expectations, <laughs> you're going to be single. <laughs> Remember, I thought like my longtime boyfriend was gay and in a relationship with the man he was sitting on the couch with. So, okay. My favorite intellectual book is probably 100 Years of Solitude. And people are always like, why the hell do you like that book? Like, incest? Like, what's wrong with you? I just think it's really well written. Like, I, I, I think it's very visual and how it describes things. And it's, like, full of, like, visual metaphor. And now I sound like an asshole the way I'm talking. Yeah. Like, oh, you love books? I'm <laughs> so happy you said that because I've tried reading that book. That was never recommended in school. But after finishing school and like learning to love to read through like summer vacation and then also college I found one of those buzzfeed lists of like a hundred books you had to read in school and I've been trying to like pick them off and I've tried to read that book like two to three times and I can't get past page 70 and I don't know if that's just me or that's like the book but it's probably me but now that you said this I'm gonna start it again I think it takes a certain kind of person to enjoy it, but it's a very good book. 
And then my fun book, that's hard because I love lots of fun books. Like I want to say The Smoke Gets in Your Eyes by Caitlin Doty, but that's not really fun. That's actually quite intellectual. Wow, now I sound like more of an asshole. I can't not sound like an asshole this episode. Today on Lady History, Lexi's an asshole. <laughs> I'm a literary snob. But no, this this will redeem you. My, my all-time favorite book like of all time is called The Perkin Papers. And quite frankly, I don't know if it even still exists. Like, I don't think you can buy a new copy of it because the copy I have is from the 1930s and I found it at an auction in a box when I was five. But it's gotten me through some rough times. That is the most Lexi way of finding a motherfucking book if I've ever heard one. I go to a lot of weird places to buy books. Of course you do. So my favorite smart person book or my favorite high school book is Frankenstein, which... Oh my God, sneak peek, foreshadowing. And then my favorite, actual, my actual favorite fun book is either Good Omens, which I read before I knew the show was coming out. By the way, I'm not a bandwagoner. Not that there's anything wrong with being a bandwagoner, but I am not a bandwagoner. Or an absolutely remarkable thing by Hank Green and the sequel, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor. But I think that Hank Green's books are beautiful depictions and explorations of humanity and social media. This little song is a story. Uh, the young lady thinks that it's time for them to get married. In fact, she thinks they just have to, and the boy doesn't want to marry. And so this song's about it. Till I lend me your pigeon to keep company with mine. Till they lend me your pigeon to keep company with mine. My pigeon gone wild in the bush, my pigeon gone wild. My pigeon gone wild in the bush, my pigeon gone wild. I have two things in common with Zora Neale Hurston. Any guesses on what those two things are? You love the bison at the zoo. You both have owned birds. I don't think either of those are true of Zorny Larson, <laughs> but um, the two things it is, is she was a trained anthropologist, and she went to a college in Washington, D.C. Okay, my guess was that you both lived in D.C. For, my actual guess was oh. that you both lived in D.C. for a while, and I know that sounds like, <laughs> that's what I was going to say, but that is like what I- No, I believe that you would have guessed that, because I think it's like- People reference her around D.C. because she spent some time there, although she didn't spend that long there. Anyway, and then the funny thing is you both also kind of had that in common with her, so haha. That's true. We yeah. all have those two things in common with Zornia Hurston. <laughs> now I will begin. So let's jump into her story book. Get it? Because she's an author. And also Haley says that all the time, so it's not that unique that I said that. Zora was born on January 15th. 1891 in Natasluga. I might be saying that wrong. Natasluga, Alabama. And like many other young Black women in her era, both of her parents had been enslaved. And when she was very young, her family moved to Florida and settled in Eatonville, which is one of the first towns in the United States to be incorporated by African Americans. So she grew up in an area with a lot of African American leaders. There, her father became mayor and pastor at the local church. And her mother, Lucy Potts Hurston, died in 1904, and her father remarried. Zora and her stepmother did not get along, and so the young girl went to live with other family members, spending a lot of time um, 
with her brother in her brother's homes. In 1914, she moved to Memphis and began working as a nanny for one of her brother's children. And she then became a maid and moved to Baltimore. In Baltimore, she eventually became a waitress and decided to go back to school studying at night. And on September 17th, 1917, Zora, at the age of 26, enrolled at the Morgan Academy. She graduated with a high school degree a year later and moved to Washington, D.C., where she began working as a manicurist and continued to work as a waitress. That fall, she entered Howard University, and in two years, she earned an associate's degree. Zora co-founded The Hilltop, which is still Howard's student newspaper to this day. She then moved to New York City. Zora, through a scholarship she earned, attended Barnard College. There, she declared herself an English major, but was also passionate about anthropology, studying under the famed founding father anthropologist Franz Boas. Also, while in New York, she befriended notable Harlem icons such as Langston Hughes and County Cullen. She became a part of the Black cultural movement, joining many other Black writers living and working in Harlem. At the end of her college career, Professor Boas encouraged her to collect Black folk life in the South. This experience shaped her future work. As both an anthropologist and author, Zora dedicated her life to the preservation and promotion of Black cultural studies. She did not only study Black culture and African diaspora in the United States of America, but also visited the islands of Haiti, the Bahamas, and Jamaica, studying religion and reporting on her findings in U.S. newspapers. In addition to producing ethnographic works for her research, she also used her studies of Black culture, religion, and folk life to inspire her fiction writing. She also collaborated with Langston Hughes on her writing. Her most famous work, Their Eyes Were Watching God, is notable for breaking barriers as one of the first fiction novels to explore the experience of a Black woman in America. Today, the novel is used as an educational tool in high school literature classes and college anthropology and American studies courses. If you have not read it, do yourself a favor, go pick up a copy from your local bookstore or library. It was the book that inspired me to pick Zora for this episode, and it's one of the works that inspired me to study anthropology in college, because when I read it as a junior in high school, I was like, this is really interesting, I need to know more about this lady, and how she got all this information to make this story, and I found out how she did ethnographic work, and I was like, that's a job? So (laughs) anyway, that's really cool. Zora wore many hats, and anthropology and literature were not her only passions. She also taught drama at the North Carolina College for Negroes, which is now the North Carolina Central University, and she worked as a consultant for a movie studio, Paramount Pictures. In the 1940s, Zora lived on a houseboat that she called Wenango, and also in a controversial hot take, Zora opposed the Supreme Court ruling in Brown v. Board believing integration would actually result in assimilation and destroy the cultural transmission of knowledge between Black teachers and Black students, which I guess makes a bit of sense. At the time, integration meant a lot of Black students went on to have white teachers and a lot of Black teachers were no longer teaching. And cultural representation in education really matters because sometimes without specific cultural understanding, meeting a student's needs can be really hard. And we still see this problem today. So obviously, I don't believe in school segregation, but I think Zora's point could be used today to support hiring diversity and hiring teachers who reflect diverse communities where they teach. Zora was married three times, but it never lasted long. I think they were all like a year, but honestly, there's such a footnote in her life, it's hard to find resources on these guys. Through her lifetime, Zora was largely ignored by mainstream white literary critics, and she had a large following in the Black community. She was usually underpaid for her work, and she lived poorly for most of her life. Towards the end of her life, despite being an accomplished author, she was evicted. She suffered a stroke in 1959, and in old age, she was forced to enter the St. Lucie County Welfare Home, 
where she was cared for until her death of heart disease on January 28, 1960. Because she had no money or close relatives, she was buried in an unmarked grave and her funeral was held through donations collected from her friends. When Alice Walker, the author known for her book, The Color Purple, found out Zora's grave was unmarked, she decided to do something about it. In 1972, she found Zora's grave and commissioned a marker for it. The marker reads, Zora Neale Hurston, a genius of the South, novelist, folklorist, anthropologist, 1901 to 1960. And yes, she got the birthday wrong, but that's okay because she did an awesome thing recognizing her. Though in life, Zora's work was overlooked. In death, she became an icon and is considered one of the best writers of her time. Today, many modern authors consider her an influence on their work. Her folk life recordings and manuscripts are held in the Zora Neale Hurston Archive at the University of Central Florida and can be accessed online through their website or the Library of Congress. Her hometown, Eatonville, Florida, honors her with the Zora Neale Hurston Museum of Fine Arts and the Zora Neale Hurston Library, two fitting tributes to her passion for arts, culture, and literature. And so I know I said the, the reason I picked her was because of their eyes were watching God, and that's true, but that's only half true. Another reason I love Zora Neale Hurston is that when I worked at the zoo, there were two bison at the National Zoo, um, and there's always bison at the National Zoo because the first animal ever exhibited at the National Zoo was a bison, and every time there's always two, and one is always named by Howard University, and one is always named by Gallaudet University because there are two universities in D.C., and the students vote through a poll to name each of the bison that represent their school, and the start is a tradition because the bison is the mascot of Howard. They are the Howard Bisons. So that's how this, this tradition started. And usually the Howard students pick an alum of their university to be the bison's name. And so while I was working at the zoo, the bison named by the Howard students was named Zora. And she was named after Zora New Hurston, who got her associate's degree from Howard University. And that's pretty cool. But unfortunately, I just found out recently that Zora passed away March 7th, 2020 from a leg injury. And when big animals like bison and horses get leg injuries, they can't really recover. So they have to be humanely euthanized, which really stinks. But they do have two new baby bison at the zoo that just got named this July. History, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived but if faced with courage, need not be lived again. Lift up your eyes upon this day breaking for you. Give birth again to the dream. Women, children, men, take it into the palms of your hands. Mold it into the shape of your most private needs. Sculpt it into the image of your most public self. Lift up your heart. Each new hour holds new chances for new beginnings. So, like Lexi said, I always say, let's crack open that storybook. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. Uh, for Marguerite Annie Johnson or Maya Angelou, I'm going to try a new way of, quote, storytelling for just in general, huge historic heroes by telling a couple of, quote, short stories rather than like one long telling of their life goals um, vignettes what vignettes vignettes yeah like um if you ever read the book the things they carried oh my god Lexi's a literary snob it's it's a book told in vignettes yes, That's yes. Kind of weird. vine was also short for vignettes yes and I thought it was fitting to do it for our author ladies because like 
short stories, haha, <laughs> so funny. Um, and especially our author, uh, Mayo, has written 36 books, and some of those actually include cookbooks. So throwback to our previous episode. So story number one, I've titled, quote, I love the uniforms. So Maya has spent some time in San Francisco and she was actually the first female African-American cable car conductor. So for those of you who are not familiar with San Francisco's cable car, they're the classic, almost like trolley-like vehicles that make a bunch of noise when you hear them. And they're mainly downtown SF to go up and down those massive F off hills. And they're a huge tourist attraction at this point. And the secret is, guys, do this if you're ever in SF, past Corona, all that good stuff. Um, it's $14 to like ride it. But if you get one of those like day passes included, then that's like, that's what you have to do. You have to make sure like the day pass you get, or if you're a local, because a lot of them use it for their transportation of like, if you're on top of Knob Hill, you go down the hill or up the hill to get to really where like the financial district stuff is, um, all the big businesses. And in our like monthly pass where you pay like $80 for it, you get like unlimited trolley car or cable car. I always called it the trolley because I, I don't know why. And Robert and other locals would yell at me saying, it's the cable car, the trolley is something different. They all look the same to me and I'm still gonna get lost either way. Anywho, 16-year-old Maya wanted this job and even said on like an Oprah Winfrey talk show, I loved the uniforms, hence the title. And it was her mother who actually said that she should go to the city office and get the job if she wanted it so badly. And when she went to the area like where the cable car conductors got hired, she was noted to be reading Russian literature and she wasn't first hired or even allowed to like apply because of her race. Like, because surprise, surprise, America wasn't woke and still not woke, but she read her Russian literature, like the boss girl she is and was hired. And when she like did get the application actually um, before being hired, she was under the legal age. So she actually wrote that she was 19, like the badass she was. And as a conductor, her mom would also join her. And like, she started like conducting at like the butt crack of dawn of 4 a.m. And her mom would um, kind of go behind the trolley car. And the trolley car isn't like a closed vehicle. It's not like a bus or a train where the doors closed. Like you could just hop on and you'll see people hold onto a pole and stand on outside and cars come like within inches of you. You can't even have like a backpack or something. Like you have to like hug yourself to this pole essentially. I've almost gotten hit once or twice. Also for cars going by, there's special lanes. If this was like the same back then as well, there's special lanes that these cable cars can go through. Regardless, her mom would trail Maya's cable car. And Maya said, quote, with her pistol on the passenger seat. So I love that. I like, I just, uh, juicy. And she worked there for about a semester before deciding to return to school. Second story, I'm calling it getting pen to paper. 
In the 1950s, African-American writers in New York City formed the Harlem Writers Guild to essentially support Black authors in the publication process and affirm them as the beautiful writers they are. And the Guild is still around today. The link is in the show notes, of course, of course. And she was one of the early members. And during this time, she began to write, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, an autobiography of her life that was published in 1969 and many claim to be her most famous book. This is now where like my memory is kind of getting fuzzy because I read a lot of her books and a lot of her books or most of her books are autobiographies or what she actually created as a genre during this time as autobiographical fiction. And that's basically taking parts of your life and adding some elaborate essence to connect it more, make it more juicy. And this one, I think is the one that took like 13 years to write. Like she kind of wrote it along with her life and also included some earlier parts. So she just like took truly the most time and it really paid off. And she also during this time in the guild continued to explore art forms in poetry, dance, music, and even like writing and directing films. So we get her just really exploring herself as a writer. And lastly, we have story number three, which I've called, quote, On the Pulse of Morning. And On the Pulse of Morning was the title of the poem she read for Clinton's presidential inauguration in 1993. That's why when Alana was like, hey, let's, let's do a quick nod of the election. I was like, ha ha, got this. She was the second poet ever to read an original work at a presidential inauguration. The first was Robert Frost at JFK's in 1961. And the poem itself shares themes of inclusion, change, and the role of their president and like the responsibility it comes, but also like the role and responsibility a citizen has, which are all things we should just remember right now, 2020. And she was chosen because she grew up in Stamps, Arkansas, or like a lot of her childhood was in Stamps, Arkansas, which was rather close to where Clinton was born. And he said that her writing really resonated with him. For example, he was quoted saying, when I read, I know why the caged bird sings, I knew exactly who she was talking about and what she was talking about in that book. And that references how Clinton's grandfather managed a grocery store that was in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. And actually for this uh, spoken word poem was recorded and she ended up winning a Grammy award in 1994. It was apparently like an amazing, amazing thing. Um, I didn't have enough time to go searching on the YouTubes for it because I was researching another gal because we're recording two episodes tonight but it was noted to be almost as like a theatrical performance. She just exuded that power and greatness and dug deep into her roots of being a dancer and a performer. And before I finish, because I have my three short stories, I would like to note that Maya at times had a very difficult life with racial injustice, physical and sexual assault, loss, and just the list goes on. But I did not want to pick stories on that because even in her a lot of her books should focus on the positives and say how she took the bad and turned it into something good. 
and each three of those stories had a little nugget. So dig deep into what I said and pick out positive from the not so positive, the bad, if you will. And I'd just like to share my favorite book of hers, which was published in 2013, a year before she died. And it's Mom and Me and Mom. And she also died at age 83. So she lived quite a life. Uh, one of my favorite quotes of hers is, if you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. She's beautiful. She's evil. And she'll do anything for love. Never been a movie like Lady Frankenstein. I'm so excited for this. My lady for today is Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, nay Wollstonecraft Godwin, the teenage girl who invented science fiction and my OG goth queen. You may have seen some internet history lessons that you should of course take with more salt than the Dead Sea. Uh, and I will note those when they come up, but sneak peek, I have wonderful news about them. Uh, Mary was born August 30th, 1797. That makes her a Virgo. Her parents were William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft. Yes, that Mary Wollstonecraft, the author of A Vindication of the Rights of Women. Side note, I think we should do an episode on pre-first wave feminism feminists, and I am calling dibs on Mary Wollstonecraft. They'd only gotten married that March. Scandal noises, gasp, shock and awe. Um, possibly because William was this radical anti-marriage philosopher, free thinker, um, and then his lover, not my favorite word, but anytime I use the word lover, I am referencing Town, was pregnant and it was a propriety thing. Um, although Mary Wollstonecraft had already had another daughter from a previous affair with an American businessman, and I don't think they were married. Yeah, that's the real shock and awe. There is so much shock and awe scandal in this story. Get ready for it. Just a week and a half after Mary was born on September 10th, her mother died of complications from the childbirth. Uh, and those complications can basically be summed up with 18th century doctors didn't wash their hands. And William Godwin made it very clear to Mary that she was a monster who had killed her mother. Literary scholar Sandra Gilbert has argued that Frankenstein is a projection of her own life, a quote unquote monster trying to have a relationship with the parent whose life it ruined. William remarried their neighbor, Mary Jane Claremont, who had two kids of her own. And then William and Mary Jane had a son. So now Mary has four half and or step siblings. Her stepmother vastly preferred her own children. Mary and her stepsister, Claire, would go on to spend quite a bit of time together, but we'll get into that in a bit. Mary found solace at her mother's grave at St. Pancras's Church in London. Uh, she learned to write her name by tracing the letters on the tombstone and that's only like the third most goth thing about her. But nobody talks about this one. I just think, I think it's like cute goth, like kawaii goth. She would just like hang out there and read or whatever. Like it was her spot. Normal kids have tree houses. Mary had her mother's grave. She published a kid's book at the age of 11 called, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, um, but it's not spelled like French. So I guess this is on you, Mary, that I'm going to, mess this up. Monsieur Nongtongpa or the discoveries of John Bull in a trip to Paris. Uh, it was her father's publishing company. Uh, so just a skosh of nepotism there, but it's still cool that she was 11 and published. In 1812, when she was 14, her father sent her to Scotland to live with some family friends, uh, the Baxters, uh, at her stepmother's request. 
one of my sources said that Mrs. Godwin felt, quote, threatened by Mary, who had become the, quote, beautiful image of his first wife, which mm, I do not like. Do not like. Mm. Okay. But you know what? Whatever, though, because Mary is thriving. She feels good. She's away from her wicked stepmother. She's made friends with the Baxter's youngest daughter, Isabel, and she's like healthy and just like thriving. She's she's living her best self. That November, she briefly visited home. And this is potentially it's kind of disputed by scholars, but this is potentially the first time she met heart eyes emoji Percy Shelley. But he was still married to his first wife, Harriet. Percy had come to study under Mary's father, but they were immediately smitten. Uh, in 1814, William Godwin brought his daughter home, like for permanence, because he wanted her to start earning her own living. But I think if Mary actually met Percy before in 1812, I like to imagine him just being like, hey, Mr. Godwin, you know who it would be really cool? It would be really cool if Mary were here. Don't you think it would be really cool if Mary were here? Um, but I like I don't know if that's what happened. But this is where Percy and Mary have definitely met. And they read together and they have intellectual discussions. He's very impressed by her parentage and her intellect. And they started their affair and they're very much in love. Mary takes him to her favorite place, her mother's grave, to profess her love for him. And this is also where Percy asks her to marry him. And this is our first internet history lesson. You may have seen that Mary Shelley lost her virginity on her mother's grave. Most scholars say, yeah, that happened. That's true, because it was a, very, it was a place of emotional growth for Mary. Percy later said that having sex with Mary was his real birthday. I hate I this they man. all had a lot of problems. <laughs> I hate this man. I hate him so much. And we're going to get more into why I hate him so much. But okay. Percy supposedly gave Mary's dad 1,200 pounds, which is now over 84,000 pounds, which is over 110,000 pounds, in exchange for him to allow Percy and Mary to run away together. Mr. Godwin took the money, said no, but Mary and Percy ran away to Switzerland anyway, and Mary's dad doesn't speak to her for two and a half years. Want to point out, Percy is still married to another woman at this point who was pregnant, and they already had a child together. I was just about to ask that. Yeah, they're still married. Mary's stepsister, Claire, who I mentioned, comes with them as a translator, but it's possible that Percy was also having an affair with her and they were a throuple. Percy was like all about free love and probably would have been one of those dudes on Bumble who's like ethical non-monogamy. I'm looking at Lexi because she knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm like envisioning a meme where it's his profile and he's got like books, book emoji, cigarette emoji. <laughs> and he's, like, he's real edgy. Oh yeah, totally. There's also evidence that Mary had affairs too. So this is like 19th century polyamory. Claire did eventually leave their household when Mary's jealousy kind of like physically made her ill. Just like she sank into this deep depression that magically got better when Claire moved out. They're constantly on the move because Percy owes a lot of people a lot of money and he has to keep running away from creditors. Uh, like he, he gave someone $110,000 for permission to do something he was going to do anyway. So mm, not great. Here is what everyone is waiting for. The writing of Frankenstein. This is a very famous story that they've done on Drunk History, which was very funny to watch a drunk person try and say Wollstonecraft Godwin. 
I died laughing for 10 whole minutes. And there's an episode of Doctor Who about it. And side note, the 13th Doctor is Chef's Kiss A plus amazing. It's a whole new show and I love it. So 1816 was the year without a summer because the Indonesian volcano Mount Tamboro, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, had erupted the year before and covered basically the whole planet in a giant ash cloud. I am being dramatic, but my point is it was dark and gloomy and rainy the whole summer across Europe. So Claire's back and she's pregnant with Lord Byron's, yes, that Lord Byron's child. And Lord Byron is staying at the Villa Diodati in Geneva. And the three of them meet him there and they're all hanging out. Are they having orgies? Maybe. Byron and Percy had been talking about romantic, capital R romantic, as in the 19th century cultural movement, those kind of ideas about death and magic and life and ooky spooky stuff. And so they start a ghost story off. And this is where Mary begins Frankenstein. It wasn't all written in that night. I feel like that's a misconception, like she wrote all of it that night. But that was just like the idea. Most of it was actually written in Bath when everyone went back to England. And it wasn't off the cuff either. Like Mary had a really hard time coming up with her idea. Percy and Mary finally got real married in December of 1816 after his first wife, Harriet, committed suicide. Uh, Apparently she was pregnant with another man's child, but honey, have you seen what's going on here? I think you would have been fine. But Percy was denied custody of their children and he believed he might have a better chance of getting custody if he were, quote, massive air quotes, settled down. This didn't work, but Mary's dad starts talking to her again. So that's nice. And Mary had a huge role in Percy Shelley's legacy, probably because some of survivor's guilt. Uh, He drowned in a shipwreck with two of his friends off the coast of Italy in July of 1822, while Mary was recovering from a miscarriage that almost killed her. When Percy's body washed up, he was only identifiable by the Keats poetry in his pocket. Percy was cremated on the beach and his heart did not burn. That's true. Um, Modern doctors say probably calcified from a bout with tuberculosis earlier in his life. One of his friends took the heart and kept it and only gave it to Mary after her constantly bugging him. Which leads us to our second internet history lesson. Did she keep Percy Shelley's heart? Yes and no. When Mary died in 1850, her family definitely found his heart in her desk wrapped in the pages of his final poem, Adonais, which is like a really sweet love poem. You should read that. But read Frankenstein first. Did she actually carry it everywhere? Uncertain. Maybe, but they definitely found it in her desk. So she definitely had it. We're, we're not really sure where it is now. I don't know how that's possible, but I have conflicting sources. It's possible that it's with Mary or with their only child who had reached adulthood, Percy Florence Shelley. They'd had a bunch of kids who either died super young or only lived like a few days. Mary is primarily responsible for the posthumous collection of Percy Shelley's work. So that's like all her. It's like in her writing credits is that she edited all of these collections. After Percy died, Mary turned down several marriage proposals because she, quote, wanted to be Mary Shelley on her tombstone, which is really sweet. (laughs) Side note, thank you to 19th century people for writing down all your feelings in like journals and thoughts and everything and then keeping them. Uh, I love that we know what you were thinking because there was no Twitter for you to document your whole lives the way that I do. 
Although, of course, if you see me on Twitter, no, you don't. This is where the stories about her usually stop after Percy died. But Alana, you said that she died in 1850. Percy died in 1822. What on earth did she do with those 28 years? I am so glad that you asked. First of all, she wrote a bunch more. Thank you very much. Five more novels that weren't Frankenstein were published in her lifetime and at least 20 short stories. While she was no longer the radical she had been when she was with Percy, she took it upon herself to protect the women in her life. Claire, who lived with her on and off, obviously, who I brought up a couple times, she lived with and supported the wife and children of one of Percy's friends who had also drowned. She helped her childhood friend Isabel, Isabel Baxter, from before, get out of England when she had a child out of wedlock. So she was protecting her, her friends. Mary died of brain cancer in 1850. Her son and his wife had her parents' bodies exhumed, and she's buried between them in St. Peter's Church in Bournemouth. There are plans for a Mary Shelley Museum in Bath, just up the street from the Jane Austen Center, and very much in the same style, uh, like employees in period clothes and family-friendly. The most recent article that I found about it was from June, and one of the people in charge of it said that it would be finished by the end of the year slash early 2021, and that tourism would pick back up by then, but it's November and the UK just went back into lockdown, so I don't think that schedule is still what's happening. But once travel is a thing again, and once that Mary Shelley Museum is open, I think Lady History Field Trip to Bath Shout outs to some professor at the University of Central Missouri for putting their study guide or test for Frankenstein as a PDF on the university website. The timeline of Mary's life on the first few pages was very helpful. I hope it wasn't a student who cheated, but the URL is like ucm.edu. So I just, I love Mary Shelley so much. I, I made this joke in high school when we were reading Frankenstein that I think I am Mary Shelley reincarnated. Like if reincarnation is real, I would buy that. Like I, I'm only half kidding, but if reincarnation is real, which I don't know. I don't know if reincarnation is real. I know hell is not real. That's for sure. I also think it would be cool to be a ghost. Anyway, Lexi, why are you laughing at me? <laughs> it's just very you. Yeah. Anyway, so that is the story of Mary Shelley, the teenager who invented science fiction. And if you think it was some like Isaac Asimov or whatever who I literally saw in a meme once. If you think a man invented sci-fi, you are incorrect. You can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode will be on ladyhistorypod.tumblr.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or tell your friends. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Lexi B. Draws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next time on Lady History, we're going to be discussing some ladies whose lives were unfortunately cut a little too short.